Christchurch, New Malden, 24th of November 2019, 11 o'clock service. David Taylor speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, The Covenant and the Spirit. Well, last time I was standing here, we were looking at Romans chapter 1 and at just how low human nature could fall in its very worst degradations. A catalogue of the very worst kind of depravities. Paul wrote, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do such things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, it wasn't particularly pleasurable to preach on a catalogue of evil like that, but I'm happy to say that today we are looking at the opposite end of the spectrum. The very high point of all that Paul has to say in the book of Romans. Chapter 8. One glorious promise cascades after another until this whole wonderful chapter reaches its very pinnacle in another catalogue. This time not of depravities, but rather a catalogue of situations in which we triumph in Christ. I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what a difference. Everything in Romans leads up to this point at the midpoint of the epistle, and then everything in chapters 9 to 16 leads away from it. Until in the very last two verses of this whole book, he reminds his readers again of this central focus of the epistle. In those last two verses, Paul talks about the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, what is this mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known? Well, it's here in Romans chapter 8. It's the secret of how there is now no condemnation, for, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and of how we can have full confidence of this. More than that, of how that confidence can bring us an overflowing joy that will not be taken away whatever circumstances life may throw at us. And more than that, the final certainty that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So, why is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Surely our hearts are condemning us all the time, that we are sinners. What did we look at last week in chapter 7? When I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. There Paul says that he wants to do what is good, but evil is right there, waging war against the law of his mind, and he is a prisoner of the law of sin at work within his body. How can he, how can we, escape from that prison. The wages of sin is death, remember. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, the answer is here in Romans chapter 8. And it's the Spirit of God living in you. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I think this can be best illustrated by two rooms in the house of the interpreter in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You may remember that Christian passes through various places on his journeys from the city of destruction to the celestial city, and one of those places is the house of the interpreter. Each room in that house contains a different tableau or event which illustrates some aspect of our Christian life. In one room that Christian visits, there is a man doing what I do here in church regularly, which is some cleaning. Only the man doesn't have a vacuum cleaner, as we would have nowadays, and the floor doesn't have a rug, which you could take outside and give it a bang to get rid of the dust. Far too expensive, I guess, to have a rug, so he sweeps the floor. And what do you think happens when you sweep a floor with dust on it? Well, no great surprise. All the dust that had lain quite settled and harmless on the floor is stirred up. And the effect of stirring up the dust is that the room becomes impossible to clean. So, what's the solution? I don't know if anybody knows how you did the cleaning in the 17th century, but what you did is you poured water, you put water the floorboards first, and having watered them, you can then brush away the dust without disturbing it all again. This is something which continued into the 19th century. Dickens talks about this in A Christmas Carol. You probably remember old Fezziwig's ball which takes place on Christmas Eve in the warehouse where Scrooge was an apprentice. Seven o'clock comes on Christmas Eve and it's time for everyone to stop work. Then the warehouse floor is transformed into a dance hall. Dickens writes, clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forever. Here's the key bit. The floor was swept and watered. The lamps were trimmed. Fuel was heaped upon the fire. And the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and brighter. Ballroom as you could desire to see upon a winter's night. So there it is. The floor was swept and watered probably watered and swept, I think, which is what it should be, but this was still going on in the 19th century. 
So what meaning does the interpreter give to this room being watered and swept for Christian to see and learn from? Well, let's allow Bunyan to tell it in his way. This is what the interpreter says. Now, while you saw, as soon as the man began to sweep, that the dust so swirled about the room that it became even more difficult to cleanse, and you were near choked to death, this is to show you that the law, instead of effectively cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse, give greater strength to, and cause sin to flourish in the soul. And this result is in spite of the fact that the law both uncovers and condemns sin, for it does not have the power to subdue. Furthermore, as you saw the gracious lady sprinkle the room with water, at which it was very easily cleansed, this is to show you that when the gospel comes with its sweet and precious influences indwelling the heart, then, just as you saw the lady settle the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued, and the heart made clean through the faith of that soul. And consequently, that same soul is then made a suitable place for the king of glory to inhabit. So the lady tries to clean the floor, but in the process of sweeping it, churns up all the dust so that you were near choked to death, as Bunyan puts it. And this is a good illustration of what we learnt last week. Paul wrote, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded me by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. The lady in Bunyan's story was trying to sweep her life clear of, for example, covetousness, but instead stirred up covetous desires that she did not know were there. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. God's laws, famously like the Ten Commandments, are diagnostic rather than remedial. It's like putting a stick in a glass of seemingly clear water which stirs up the sediment at the bottom. We see what's really there and we need a cure and not just a diagnosis. So, what is the cure? Well, Bunyan's explanation hints at it. As you saw this gracious lady sprinkle the room with water at which it was easily cleansed, this is to show you that when the gospel comes with its sweet and precious influences indwelling the heart, then is sin vanquished and subdued and the heart made clean through the faith of that soul. And consequently, that same soul is then made a suitable place for the king of glory to inhabit. Or to put it as Paul says, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. We are set free from the power of sin 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, perhaps this can be even better illustrated by another room in that same house of the interpreter. The interpreter takes Christian into a room where there is a fire burning against a wall. Beside the fire, there is a sinister person constantly throwing water onto the blaze to put it out. But amazingly, instead of being dampened down as you expect, the fire gets higher and hotter the more that water is thrown at it. Very odd, isn't it? The fire should have been extinguished. Instead, the opposite. The reason is discovered when the interpreter takes Christian round to the other side of the wall. There, he finds another person who is secretly adding fuel to the flames from a vessel of oil every time that the sinister person tries to extinguish it. And the interpretation in this house of the interpreter Try as hard as he might, the devil will never extinguish the flame kindled in the hearts of people as a work of God's grace. And the oil is the work of the Holy Spirit, secretly applied to the believer's heart. So that as Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. It's a supernatural change to the heart. And it's done secretly so that maybe even the believer doesn't notice it happening. We have to be sensitive to listening to that still, small voice, or we'll miss it. A singer called Lou Fellingham has a song which is played occasionally on Premier Christian Radio, which illustrates this. And whenever I hear it coming up on the radio, I try to stop what I'm doing and listen to it and use it to renew my Christian walk. The words go like this. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labours increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. So lean hard, lean hard, lean on the everlasting arms. Lean hard, lean hard, lean on the everlasting arms. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength is, has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. So there it is. In, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That oil of the Holy Spirit is secretly applied to our lives so that the fire of Christ's love poured into our lives is never put out. I think the illustration in that first room about the dampening down the dust is more about Romans chapter 7, about dealing with sin in our lives, whereas the illustration of Christ secretly giving the oil of his grace to overcome temptation and trials is more of a Romans chapter 8 illustration. It requires us to have had that experience of Pentecost when Christ came and indwelt all the believers through the sending of his Holy Spirit. 
Paul says here in chapter 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, this, who, through his spirit who lives in you. Twice in this sentence, he talks about the spirit of Christ living in you. And this is absolutely vital because it's the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Two sentences earlier, he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, it may be that you're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I thought that if I came along to church regularly, that would be enough. Or if I did my best to obey the Ten Commandments, that would be enough. And we've just seen that the Ten Commandments were diagnostic rather than remedial, and that in themselves are not going to bring us to life in Christ. What about this mystery hidden for so long ages past, but now made known so that all nations might believe and obey him? How can I be sure that the Spirit of Christ dwells in me? Can one be sure? Well, yes, we can be sure. But it has nothing to do with our performance of our trying to live life according to God's standards. It has everything to do with allowing God's Holy Spirit to come and indwell us as has been made available to all believers since Pentecost. The secret hidden for long ages, but now made known. Look carefully at verse 10. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Well, yes, that's true for everyone in the world. We're all dead because of sin. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Our spirit is alive because of righteousness? What's that all about? Well, it's not our righteousness. Paul has made that clear earlier. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. So whose righteousness is it? Well, there is one that is righteous, and he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So through the cross, our sin is washed away. The floor is not just swept, but watered and swept. And we are set free from the power of sin. No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. All we have to do is to appropriate it. Say, in the quietness of our hearts, Lord Jesus, thank you for cleansing me, for setting me free from the power of sin and death through your atoning death on the cross in that hidden room that nobody can see but me. I want you to pour the oil of your Holy Spirit onto my life so that in whatever circumstances life may throw at me, I can be more than a conqueror through him that loved me. May your Holy Spirit blaze in my life so that I may know afresh or maybe know for the first time that I am a child of God May I experience afresh that intimate knowledge of God being able to say, Abba, Daddy. Thank you, Jesus, for all you did to open the door into your presence for me. Amen. Moments like this are deeply personal. 
barrier between God and man is torn down. Allow God's Holy Spirit to testify with our spirit that we are children of God, Abba, Father, Daddy. And it's more than that too. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Christ, who died for us, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then that great list of what might possibly separate us from Christ's love, and then no, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've prayed a prayer like that or something like it, maybe for the first time, could I ask you to tell someone? It might be myself or Stephen or Becky or one of the lay readers. At the end of the 6.30 service, we often invite people who would like to have a time of prayer to have a time over there by the organ, and we'd love to do that if you felt God calling you today. And we'd love to help you on your way. In fact, if you do that, you'll be following in the footsteps of a very illustrious person. That person wrote a very famous diary entry over 250 years ago in a very similar situation. He had been a devout churchgoer all his life. He had preached. He had done prison visiting and visiting the sick and infirm. But he was exhausted in all his Christian service. He'd seen little fruit from it and was frankly thinking of giving it all up. And his name was John Wesley. And then he wrote in his diary on Wednesday the 24th of May, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, when he was describing the change which God's works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, the rest is history. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, John Wesley went on to transform English society, bringing our nation back to God. Something that because of his preaching and its transformative effect on thousands of people's lives, our nation was spared the horrors of the French Revolution. If you go to the Museum of London and just before you go in, Look to your right, about 50 yards, and you'll see a large grey plaque with that very same diary entry printed on it, commemorating the place nearby where this happened. Now, for you, that may not be in Aldersgate Street in the City of London, but here in Christchurch, perhaps even today. And if so, it's the most important day in your life, not just for this life, but forever. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Allow him to live in you today. Amen.